Hi everyone, Mark here. Welcome to the Mark for Glory podcast. This is episode number 18. Uh, today we have a very special guest who uh, works a lot with the a taxi community. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. So maybe we can start by uh, you talking a bit about your upbringing and what it was like growing up and what got you uh, into the field you're in now? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's see here. Well, first off, I'm an occupational therapist. Not a lot of people know what occupational therapy is, but I work, oh, I work two jobs right now. I work um, throughout the week in what's called a subacute nursing facility. And then I work weekends in acute inpatient hospitals. So that's more intensive inpatient in the brain injury, spinal cord injury units there. So I have kind of a, a diverse uh, profession that I absolutely love bouncing between. So where I got involved in this is my parents always said, you know, you should be an occupational therapist. And of course, what your parents want is not what you decide you want to be, right? So I decided I was going to be a math teacher instead. I was um, studying math education and uh, I was tutoring a friend. And he said to me, if you, if you didn't do, if you like weren't a math teacher, what would you do? And I said, I would be an occupational therapist. And he said, what is that? And I said, well, this is where you meet with people after injury, uh, surgery, and you work with them about getting their independence back. Whatever it is they need to do to be independent again, whether it's dressing or toileting or walking or uh, just being mobile again, that is what you team up and work on with them. And he said, that is you. And so right then and there, I completely changed my major and I decided to go into biology to kind of seek out occupational therapy. Now I went ahead and I changed my major. And then when I was a senior in college, what happened is one day I woke up with this striking headache and it just started getting worse and worse throughout the day. I started um, becoming a little bit more emotional. The lights started hurting me. Um, I worked at an information desk in the middle of campus and the lights were hurting so bad. I, I assumed it was a migraine because I've never, you know, never really had intense headaches like that. And this guy was walking by and he had ski goggles because he was going to like a wrestling match where, you know, they dress up. And I knew I needed those ski goggles. Like they would make me feel so much better. So I went up to him and I'm like, can I please have those ski goggles? My eyes are hurting me. I have a migraine. And I don't know why he gave them to me, but he did. So I put the ski goggles on and I laid a flat on the ground in the middle of campus. Somehow the next person came on board, released me from my job. Yes, I was on like on duty. Anyways, I got home. I don't know how that happened, but I got into my apartment. I went straight to the toilet and I vomited. And then I went to my roommate and I said, I need to lay down, but please do not let public safety come in and steal my ski goggles. She said, okay. So I went in the room and I didn't trust her. So I wore my ski goggles to bed. And not too long after my friends came in and they were gonna make fun of me because I left my car running in the middle of the parking lot with the doors open. So they were like, they call me Liz in college. Like, oh my gosh, we're going to go make fun of Liz. So they came in. My roommate was like, oh no, something's wrong with Liz. So they went in there and they're like, 
knock on the door. And I guess I sprung right up and I'm like, hello. <laughs> and they came over and they're like, Liz, we need to take your ski goggles. And I was like, you're not taking these ski goggles. And I said, Liz. And I guess I was acting really childish, talking like a five-year-old. So long story short, they took off the ski goggles and my eyes were like pin drops. And they realized something was wrong. So they took me into the emergency room. I was slurring my words. I was um, confused, talking like a child, vomiting. The lights were hurting, striking headache. So the ER doctor thought I was intoxicated, didn't do any tests and sent me home. The next day I was acting still very childish, like a five-year-old. My friends, they called their parents. They called my parents. My parents said, my older sister is a physician assistant. She said, take her in now. And I want testing done. So they went ahead and they did testing on me and they found a mass about the size of a tangerine on my frontal lobe. Obviously the first diagnosis was a brain tumor. Then they did more testing and they found it to be a large mass of blood in my frontal lobe. So I went into emergency brain surgery and uh, I came out with intensive inpatient therapy from my family because my mom's a speech pathologist. My sister is a PA. So she made me eat with my left hand. My father was a clinical psychologist. So they wouldn't leave me alone. And the nurses were so protective. They said, they said, let her sleep. So nice. Anyways, from there, I went into acute inpatient, a brain injury unit at an acute inpatient rehabilitation hospital. I guess I packed like I don't even know, like five t-shirts, one pair of shorts, no underwear, six socks, something like that. And my mom repacked for me. I went there. I got intensive PTOTST. And at this time I was a major in biology and I had been accepted to my master's. So I was so excited to tell them, Hey, I'm going to be an OT. At least I hope still. Anyways, I had a, an amazing experience being, being a patient on the other side of things. The, the way it works with the frontal lobe is it, it's responsible for problem solving, sequencing, judgment, higher level thinking. So I passed all the tests with rehab. You know, it took me a while, but I passed the tests. But here's the thing about the frontal lobe. You can pass the tests, but fail in the real world. So I went back to college and I uh, failed. Like I was late to all my classes. I remember going to biology with nothing but a toothbrush and toothpaste and my pajama pants. And I'm like, what in the world? I didn't think I had anything wrong with me. Like, that's the thing. It was like, woohoo, um, I'm fine, right? Anyways, um, it happened one day when I was studying and I looked at the clock because I thought, wow, this, this paragraph looks kind of familiar. I looked at the clock and I realized I had been on the same paragraph for an hour. And at that moment, something hit where I realized, holy, I'm not going to say holy blank, something is wrong with me. And so my mom had given me tape recorders. So I started tape recording all my classes, putting myself on timers, giving myself rest breaks. And I, I made it through. I didn't get my straight A's, but I graduated. So from there, uh, real quick, I actually moved in with my grandmother. I don't know who was like more sharper, uh, um, a 92-year-old woman or a 22-year-old post-brain surgery. We made quite the pair together, uh, but we survived. We survived. Uh, my rehabilitation went great from there. Uh, one day I woke up with a huge swollen tongue and bite marks, and I didn't, didn't know what it was. So my sister took me to the... Um, in, um, she took me to urgent care and I walked in. And as soon as I walked in, I blacked out and, um, 
that was my first seizure. So um, from there, I, um, you know, I have had, you know, absence, partial grand mal seizures, uh, completely stable now on medication. So this is a long answer to your story, Mark. Um, and now here I am, I actually on the weekends in that inpatient, I actually work as an OT in the brain injury unit I was a patient at. And so I see those beds and I remember those beds. I remember that room. And so um, I got into OT before all this, became a patient, um, and it did nothing but stir my passion for this profession in this field. And so that is a long, long response of how I got into this field, my experience through it, and where I am today. How long did that whole situation last, like from when your uh, brain tumor started becoming a problem to like where it wasn't an issue in your life anymore? Yeah, yeah, fantastic question. So just to clarify, it was initially a diagnosis of brain tumor, and then it was actually a mass of blood called a cavernous angioma under an AVM. So um, not necessarily cancer, but more brain injury, um, similar to like what they would just classify as more stroke oriented when I got it evacuated. So to answer your question, I don't remember how long I was inpatient. It's all kind of a blur to me. I think maybe three weeks or so. My mom said it took, it took about a year and a half to get my personality back because the frontal lobe is responsible for your personality. At that point, um, I, you know, I was more Elizabeth, she said. Now you uh, like to work with people with ataxia and how did that come about? Absolutely. So I started a YouTube channel, Little Steps, Big Gains for my patients. Started with one patient. So when they go home or when they're outside of therapy, they have videos they can do. So it started with that and it transitioned to adding an educational video here and there. And I was really targeting Parkinson's disease because I'm LSVC, LSVT big certified. That's where a lot of my education is um, for Otaga, uh, Tai Chi. And anyways, my little sister who has her PhD studying um, the, the effects of speech and neurological conditions, she said, you know what, check out the ataxia support groups. And I was a little intimidated because I, I have education in ataxia, uh, mostly stroke uh, versus acquired versus inherited. But um, anyways, I said, all right, I'll, I'll reach out. And oh my gosh, the ataxia community has been so welcoming. And I've been overwhelmed with uh, the strength people have in a condition and a condition that's constantly overlooked and um, underserved. And so that is where um, I'm, I've actually developed kind of some anger at the lack of attention to the ataxia community because people say, oh, it's rare. So let's spend all of our research on, you know, multiple sclerosis, uh, Parkinson's disease, um, you know, other, those are some big ones. Um, you know, ataxia is so, it, you know, it's so rare and that angers me. And it angers me, you know, I do research on these educational videos and I can go to tons of research on the vestibular system with Parkinson's disease. And there's so little on ataxia. And so I have to dig and dig and I love digging. I love research, but the more I dig, the angrier I get that there's just these studies say more research is needed in this area. And it, it, it really bothers me. So that has just stirred me even more for the ataxia community to be an advocate. I did create a video 
for the ataxia community um, to educate my peers on what it is. And, you know, if you have a person with a cerebellar stroke, you're thinking, why is their speech slurred? And why are they so tired all the time? What is it with this double vision thing? And I really want to educate them on the variety of symptoms there are, but listening to the community, let them tell us. Let's let's listen to the community. I contacted seven support groups and I said, tell me what is it you want people to know about your condition? And that spurred on my video uh, where it's uh, what we need to know, where it's kind of the educational part and who we need to listen to. We need to listen to the community. So uh, my little sister got me involved, fell in love with the community. And now, even though it was going to be like a subset for me, now that's like, these are the people I want to serve first and foremost. I think you touched on an important point there because whether it's a tax or whatever, um, especially with chronic issues, we have a problem. Just simply listen to it. It's the most important thing, but no one really does it. I mean, it gave you a different perspective that having this brain tumor and whatever you understood what it was like. The impression a lot of us get is that the health professionals that we deal with are kind of detached. Absolutely, absolutely. And I still serve the Parkinson's community, but I have, it's interesting when I post educational videos, I've had a few people say, one lady responded and said, these people that post these videos are so out of touch. And it kind of hurt my feelings because I'm a person that listens first and foremost, but I, I didn't take it too personal because some people have such a reservation. They're so defensive against professionals because professionals think they know best. And they think that because we're educated, because we have our master's or PhD or whatever, our doctorate, we are the ones to teach you. And that is not the case, especially with ataxia. I have learned more from the community than I have in any of my educational courses. And so there is a component that we have to listen to learn. That is where true education can come from is by listening. So I get why people are defensive. I don't take it personal, even though it's hard not to get your feelings hurt sometimes. Uh, but the ataxia community has been fantastic and being so open and welcoming to me. Obviously, there are good health professionals out there but like my girlfriend has acquired ataxia Mm -hmm. through a brain tumor so i know full well like she's incredibly strong and Mm -hmm. she's been through a lot of not so great people that just don't understand that's very important especially when it comes to awareness The first step is having people care about the problem. Yeah, yeah. I have a patient right now with acquired ataxia, and I work with some of the most amazing professionals I have. And one of the doctors I spoke with said concerning him, oh, it's the cerebellum, you know, that's that's kind of a lost cause. And he didn't really mean a lost cause, like don't work with him, but he meant prognosis wise. And I said, wait a minute, that's not true. It's acquired first off which, you know, definitely shows more neuroplasticity, but there's even research on inherited ataxia is improving. And unless you show me differently, well, I, you know, change my ways, but I have so many studies that support even inherited ataxia. So these are people with uh, genetic degenerative progressive diseases. 
even neuroplasticity, pardon me, neuroplasticity in those cases, there is research there. And so I don't care if you think I'm an optimistic person that believes in every person, I follow what the research says. And so I got a little upset with him and a little feisty. And this guy, he has gone from, you know, requiring total assist. Yesterday, we walked 150 feet and I, I don't want to brag about him, but I'm bragging about him to everyone to show them, hey, this isn't a lost cause. The cerebellum has the ability to, you know, to uh, that neuroplasticity work around those areas of damage. So absolutely, I agree with you, Mark. There's a, an educational component to the professionals, um, especially with some of these, these ataxias. I think also the other issue is dismissiveness. I understand that, you know, uh, people have read whatever they've read, gone to school and whatever, and this is the conclusion and this is what's going to happen, right? But uh, diagnosis doesn't factor in the complete person. Two people could have the same issue, exact same issue, and one person could surpass expectations while the other person doesn't, right? Absolutely. And it also depends on what gains are made. So there's a recent study I was looking at with a rehabilitation with an individual with acquired and another individual with inherited ataxias, they both made improvements, but it was just in different areas and different, you know, one person was more on the vestibular system and dizziness. The other person was with balance. So both made improvements, but maybe in different areas. Uh, thanks for your time, Elizabeth. Okay. I know you have to go to work. But, uh, it was great uh, to hear from you and uh, have a good rest of the day. Awesome, Mark. Thanks again for having me. Okay. Thank All you. Right, bye.